there's a reason why people that are at the top of the pile, we're, we really want to believe that people at the top of the pile are smarter, more capable, yeah. work harder, have yeah. good intention. Like you want to believe that. And when it doesn't turn out that way, it's a disappointment, but it is worse when the organizations um, don't own it. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone. Sometimes I'm dining with friends. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Dr. Gina Cox is an organizational psychologist whose executive clients want to make a positive difference regarding diversity and inclusion, but are tentative about treading into unfamiliar and seemingly unforgiving terrain. Gina understands why some top-level leaders avoid dealing with these emotionally charged issues. Many executives get highly filtered information. As a result, they often do not realize just how challenging day-to-day work life can be for some of their employees. As a strategic advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker, Gina guides these executives to feel confident and prepared about these sensitive topics as they are about sales or marketing. Gina has advised leaders regarding organizational culture, employee experience, diversity and inclusion, talent analytics, and leader effectiveness at many high-performing companies. She has worked with IBM, Raymond James Financial, Hitachi, Scotiabank, Johnson Controls, MasterCard, American Express, and many more. Gina is also a professional speaker whose keynote speech educates, inspires, and cajoles leaders to enhance the experience of Black women in the workplace. Hello and welcome, Gina, to Diversity Dish. How are you? Sadie, I am delighted to be here. I have been checking out your podcast and I love the way you have it structured, you know, like with the one-on-ones and then the sort of taking the, the options for taking questions and the clever way that you have labeled your, your, your kind, your formats. So I am delighted to be here and just to share with you uh, and your wonderful audience and get to know all of you. Thank you so much. That is so kind of you to say. I'm I'm, I'm blushing. (laughs) Oh, so Gina, you are an inclusion and diversity strategist. Is that kind of correct? Or can you give me the proper uh, title? That is correct in that that is part of what I do. But, you know, basically I am an organizational psychologist, which simply means that for many, many years, in my case, 30 plus, I've been studying human behavior at, at work and thinking about what are the the points at which we get the good outcomes, you know, not just productivity and performance, but good employee experience. And then what are the rubs where we get the bad experiences? So that's what I know best, that human experience. And it always has a lot to do with leadership because leaders determine, you know, what kind of experience people have at work. So anyway, inclusion strategist is part of what I do because everything I just described 
requires leaders to be effective at working with all of their employees. Right. Well, that's awesome. That means that we're going to have a really good time today because I'm working also in inclusion and, and equity and diversity. And so I think we can really get into that. But before we do, uh, I would like for you to tell us, what are you most passionate about right now? <laughs> well, the thing that I'm most passionate about right now is, <clears throat> in fact, under the umbrella of diversity and inclusion. Because of all these years that I told, I've told you I've been working in corporate spaces, I've really come to the conclusion that senior leaders in organizations have kind of sort of been missing a piece of information or something because I, I've noticed that in all of these efforts over the years where leaders are, are really trying, I think, to diversify their workforces or and or, you know, make sure that all employees have a great experience, it's not, it doesn't happen. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. The things are getting better. So what I'm really passionate about these days is because I think I have some answers to that puzzle. And I actually don't think it is as complicated as some people think. Mm -hmm. I'm just really passionate about getting that word out and trying to make sure that people who look like me or not even look like me, but who have, for whatever reason, been part of groups that are subordinated, that we can all just have a better time at work. I'm really passionate about that. I love it. And I agree with you. I, I want everybody to have a better time at work. <laughs> Hi, I bet you're wondering how you can work with me. Well, wonder no more. Just go to diversitydish.com and get all the information right there at your fingertips. Whether you need an equity and inclusion consultant, speaker, or a coach to help you discover your social justice sweet spot, I'm here to serve diversitydish.com. I look forward to meeting you. It's that simple. I, that's the other thing I say to leaders. Yeah, I want to know about the metrics and yeah, I want to, it's important. You can't, if you don't have a diverse workforce, you should have a diverse workforce. So that's, you know, yeah, I yes. hope all of those numbers are great. But what I really want to know is that every employee, when they go home at the end of the day and they talk to their loved ones, they don't, they say, I got the, I, you know, maybe they don't even really have to talk that much about work. They can just transition into talking about the their personal lives because the only reason people talk a lot about work when they go home is because there's something about it that has created stress and they're just trying to find a way to get rid of it. That's so, right. I want people to just have that balance to not have this be a trailing problem that they take with them everywhere they go. Right. I, I totally agree. And it's true. I, if you think about it, it's like, oh my gosh, today was so hard. Or do you know what such and such said today? You know, as, as in the people who are often doling out the microaggressions or things like that. And so it's like, when we can get to a place where that's not the conversation we're having, where it's just kind of like, oh, well, what's for dinner tonight? And we're just moving exactly. on. Exactly. And then wake up the next day, day full of optimism. Yes. Today, the next day is just going to be a great day. Yes. Right. So we definitely, that's definitely what we want. We want people to be having a good time at work. And in your experience, when you're 30 years of experience, what do you be, I, I know that you, you say that, you know, it's the leadership is, tends to be kind of oblivious to how this works. What is the main thing that you find that they are, 
that that they're apprehensive about? What is it that really makes them feel like this is a, a big, big thing? <laughs> Obviously, there's not a simple answer to that question, but right. let me tell you this story. I once worked in an organization where I was on the road for a breakfast, um, and the leader of the organization just happened to also be part of this meeting. And I said, as I was making small talk, I said, you have a beautiful family. And that person reacted by pushing their chair back and going, how do you know my family? It was a, it was a reaction <laughs> of, I call it fear. It was a reaction of fear that I did not see coming, but it told me everything I needed to understand. And I'll never forget it, but it's relevant to your question because what I interpreted from that is that there is just this, this unfamiliarity with uh, differences that, and in the United States specifically, you know, we live in a very segregated country mm -hmm. where you are most likely to interact with people of other races and ethnicities, other ways of thinking when you're in the workplace, but you're not very likely to interact with those people uh, in your neighborhood, in your church, in your school, or on your playground. So some of it is just this unfamiliarity that then interferes with how a leader interacts with a person who might not look like them. And to be honest, I don't even really like to talk about bias because what I think it is, what I think is that when people are unfamiliar with something, they just take the easy path and they just kind of gravitate to the familiar, the known, and then they gravitate away from the unfamiliar, the dissimilar, and the unknown. So the simple answer is fear and unfamiliarity gets in the way, get in the way. Right. So then how do you mitigate that fear? Mm -hmm. yeah. So first of all, when I'm working with clients, I don't talk a lot about that individual level because what I really want for organizations is that they think about these challenges on a systemic level. In other yeah. words, I always like to say, when I'm working with someone in a team, they don't, even, they don't even have to like me. The only thing they have to do is respect me, but they don't have to like me. And they don't have to want to spend time with me or whatever, but we just need to be able to work well enough to get this job done. And at the end of the day, say, we got the job done. So, and managers and, and CEOs and C-suite leaders cannot go around and fix every dyad of relationships, making sure that Gina <laughs> and Sadie get along and Sadie and Tom. So what organizational leaders and what I focus on is the systemic changes that leaders can make that can make things better overall. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, the diversity piece is all about representation and numbers and, and, mo and mobility rates and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But when we get into talking about how do we make things better at the experience level, that falls into the inclusion bucket. Because right. the inclusion bucket is all about, well, what does it feel to work like to, to work here every day in this team, with this manager, in this organization. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, you know, one of the things I've done for many, many years, Sadie, is I have helped organizations use employee surveys to measure the experience of employees. And what I know for a fact, and what I have seen in additional research, is that about 25 to 33% of people who are, in this case, Black, uh, African descent, Hispanic, Latino, uh, Native American, and so on, 
will re an Asian, uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander in the United States context will say that they ex have negative experience, le more, less positive, more negative experiences than the majority group. This is a consistent pattern. So what I already know is that organizations need to understand that experience. And I try to help them figure out how to understand it. I mentioned employee surveys, obviously there are things like focus groups. There's looking, using AI to look at data where it is sort of uh, after the fact, but interpreting the patterns that you see. There is organizational network analysis, which is a method to say that what we recognize is that people from disadvantaged groups, dissubordinated groups, tend to not have all of the social networks that other groups have. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is intentionally set up that way. So they don't necessarily get the same flow of information and the benefit of the relationships and the mentoring and the sponsorship. So when you ask me, how do I help? At the organizational level, those are things I'm interested in. I'm also interested in having senior leaders, whole managers and other leaders accountable for their behavior. So when a person who says, this is a challenge I have encountered, they ought to know how they can get help for that challenge. And if the challenge is coming from your manager, what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? The reality is that most of us, and I mm -hmm. say us because I've been in this situation and I have made the decision. I wait until I find the next opportunity. And, and you're I'm, out of there. Because what am I going to do? Fight the system? Right. But, but when I leave, not only do I take my talents and capabilities and training and everything that hopefully I got, mm -hmm. but I leave with that bitter taste in my mouth. I might not talk about it, mm -hmm. but I would like that when, if anything does happen, that I know where I could go to get support, encouragement, and resolution. I know, and protection. Yes. Our biggest fear is if I actually say what I'm experiencing, the next thing that happens is I start getting ostracized and, and ignored. I don't think, it, you know, obviously in some cases people might actually get fired, but I don't think that's the way it, it happens. I think the way that the reaction that comes at you is at first subtle because the person mm -hmm doesn't want the rest of the organization to know they're retaliating. Mm -hmm. So it's a very subtle exclusion, not sharing of information, not including in the inner circle, mm -hmm. not giving the raise, not giving the promotion. And a person who's in that situation can see what's happening because obviously mm -hmm. it's affecting you. But typically the, that happens at, in a level where other people around it might not even notice. Right. Happening until a certain point is reached. So I guess that's a, a, a long answer, but I would like uh, leader managers to be held accountable for, or I want senior leaders to establish an expectation that all employees will be treated well. I think it's that simple. Right. And that if you are a manager who doesn't do that, then there's some consequence for you. Negative well, consequence. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah, that I see that all the time, you know, in my work and when I'm talking to people about my work, mm -hmm. I say that First of all, it's so important that the leadership is on board. If the leadership is not on board, what do they say? You're, you're mopping a dirt floor, exactly. right? Like it's never going to, you're never going to get it clean. It's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then secondly is people have to know 
who the people are that they can go to and advocate for themselves when something happens. So uh, if you're not, if you, you're not in the inner circle, if you don't get the opportunity to create these relationships and then something happens and you know that your manager may be part of it, then you're just kind of in the wind. You're just out there. Yeah. And, you know, and people are like, well, why don't, well, why won't anybody, why won't they say anything? Because mm-hmm. there's no safe space to say anything. There has to be some safety and some belief that the company will be behind you, that someone will be behind you. And if you have no belief in that, then why, why put yourself out there? Right. right. You know, so Sadie, that is the reason why as I do this work, the other thing that I'm, that I'm doing more of than ever before is helping all people, but obviously particularly those who stand to benefit the most from it, which would be those who haven't had the advantages, reminding everyone that when you think about your career, even though your primary career might be in corporate, because most of us, including me, have spent most of our time as employees of an organization, you always have to have a side hustle. And, <laughs> okay. by side, and by side hustle, I don't necessarily mean that you're selling you know, fruit at the farmer's market or anything that literal, not necessarily, but you also need to have a side hustle for your career. So as you are preparing, you know, you're gonna do the best that you can for this job. You're gonna work hard because we know that the one thing we have been taught is And that we know is you better do it well because people are always looking for an excuse. So we work hard. Exactly. We're going to do that. We're going to keep our head down and work hard, which isn't necessarily a good thing for us, by the way. In the long run, we can talk about that another time. But we we know that we're just going to get this job done and then go home. But what I also want uh, people to do is to have um, a side hustle for your career. And a side hustle for your career means that every day that you are develop as you're developing your skills, you are sort of taking note about what you're learning and you are thinking about, well, how could this thing that I'm learning here be used outside of this organization? Mm-hmm. You're not, you're, you're constantly thinking about, well, what if I did not have this job? How else can I present myself to the world if something should fall apart? Mm-hmm. So let me give you some specific examples about what I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is I think everybody should have a personal board of directors and a personal board of directors could include some of the people with whom you work, but it should not be 100% of people from your employer. So it can be friends, it can be relatives, it can be somebody you met at church. I don't care. Anybody can be on that board of directors, but you want to be as thoughtful about that as you would be if you were setting up a business. So you would say, you know what, I'm not, first of all, identify the things that you don't think are your strengths or that people have told you or you could improve upon. Maybe there are three things, I don't know, communication, you know, building relationships and, and, you know, whatever, right? Take those three things and say, I'm going to find somebody who's really good at each of these things. I'm going to target that person. I'm going to reach out to them after I, you know, get to learn a little bit about them. I'm going to say, I'm not going to say, will you be my mentor or will you be on my board of directors? People don't like that because it sounds like a lot of work. It does. <laughs> You're going to come up with a specific kind of question, a specific question you want to ask that person. And you're going to say to this person, let's say that person is Sadie, 
you know, you can send a note or however you, or however you do it. You say, you know, Sadie, I've been, I've been noticing you and I noticed that you're really good at X. That's something that I want to improve on. And I have a question for you. What do you think or how do you think and what should, you're going to have that question. One, just going to ask the question. Sadie will not hesitate to give you some feedback. And you can then decide, depending on how Sadie responds, do I ask her two questions or three? Is she going to make the space? Do I just take what I have and, and can I tell she's not interested? Mm -hmm. or, or does it feel like Sadie is like perking up and saying something that lets me know she wants to help me? And then, of course, you can decide, you know, well, would you mind if I contacted you again in two weeks? You know, the point I'm making here is that by doing this, I, what I'm really saying is take control of your own career. Do not 100% depend on the whims of your employer, regardless of your of who you are and what you look like and where you come from and where your ancestors came from. So as I am talking to corporations, and also, this is what I also say to people who ask me for advice on a career basis, then the other thing I would say is, you know, always as I'm thinking about this career, this side hustle, you know, for your career, always, of course, have your resume up to date. That's a pretty obvious thing that you have heard uh, before, but I actually kind of go a little step further than that. And I say, kind of document the things that you are doing and accomplishing in your job for your employer. Keep a note, keep notes about that. These are just notes because when you get to the point where you have to explain to someone how you add value in the current job, mm -hmm. you can use this information internally for promotion opportunities and externally. Most people, can, they start blabbering when they're asked, you know, how do you <laughs> yeah. add value in your job? Right. If you have a job where the work that you do is visible, you know, like if you're producing something or creating something, take photographs of that. Create a portfolio of all your work. So a portfolio of your work, I don't care if you're working on a production line. I don't care. I don't care what job you are doing. If you're working in a restaurant and you have the job where you're the server, take pictures with your clients and say, you know, and have something that you can say, these are, these are my clients that I served. And, you, and this is somebody that I'm so close to by building these relationships that I can give them a hug and they can take a picture with me. That's evidence of how much care and dedication I put into my job. So I'm not just talking to people who have certain jobs. I'm talking to anybody. And I'm saying, you have to be purposeful because the truth is the world is not set up to, to do this for you. But the people who get ahead are the ones that do these things. You just might never have been told that it would be to your advantage to do them. Wow. I love that. It is. And it's, it makes so much sense yes. uh, to just take in taking control of your, basically you're taking control of your brand of who you're, you're, yes. you're putting out there and, and creating this brand and this, this person and you are, getting the information that you need to make that brand, that person, the best that it can be and to get the best that you can out of wherever you are. Yes. And, and, and it does, you know, as I was listening to you, I'm thinking, well, it does so much for your psyche as well, because you feel more in power and in control of what happens to you, no matter what, versus allowing the idea to just be in this job. And if this job goes away, you have no idea what's going to happen, yes. Yes. letting that be the driving force. So that I, I love, love, love that. And it's never too late to do it. It's never too late to do it. That's right. You, 
you've heard it now. So you might as well start now, you know, dust off that resume, create that document where you're documenting the things that you've done and the things that you can remember that you've done. And then the things that you're doing going forward and making sure that, and it's also kind of a, a self, um, a self cheerleader, right? It's, it's also kind of giving yourself a little bit of kudos along the way. Oh, absolutely. Oh, look, I remember I did that, right? Absolutely. And, and of course, as you're doing this kind of work, you know, you can have a simple notebook, you can do it on your computer, however you want to do it, but you're doing this for you. So if you shortchange yourself on this, you're the only person who's going to suffer for it. So right. talk about you. Of course, as you're doing this, you will probably want to have a page where you start listing some goals. And I don't think you have to worry about the format you write them in. I don't care. You have they have to be fancy. Just start making some notes, like your fantasy. In fact, these might be things you haven't even told your loved ones, your spouse, your children. In fact, it sometimes it's better not to tell people what your dreams are. <laughs> not everybody rises up and says, "Well, yeah, go for it." Some proportion of people will say, "Oh, yeah, well, yeah, right. You're never gonna." So, <laughs> I, I'm not big on telling everybody what my dreams are, but. Um, but that's something else that you ought to be doing for yourself. Again, I don't care what job you have today. I don't care what your income is. If you are, time goes by really fast and there's yeah. no worse feeling than having some years go by and going and saying to yourself, where did they go? What happened? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can have some control of that. And we all go through this, by the way. It's, it's not everybody that has this challenge. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, you know, Sadie, I'll say one more thing uh, on this. So I talked about the side hustle. So let's, uh, and I said career side hustle, but let's talk about the also the, the, the business side hustle, because I also think that there's no question that entrepreneurship is a viable alternative to employment, right? Mm-hmm. To being an employee. Mm-hmm. But you obviously would do it when it makes sense, because not everybody can step out and do that. Not everyone has the basic things that they need to do that. But if there's one thing I've learned over these years is that you don't need a lot to start out as an entrepreneur. What you need is more than anything else is passion about something. So I, a few weeks ago, I'm not a big TikTok person, but I decided I ought to check out TikTok. And okay. one Saturday, I sat there for like 10 minutes, might even have been 15, and watched this young man put rubber bands around a uh, watermelon. So have you seen that? I have. My daughter showed it to me. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. When I went on TikTok, I was not looking for him. Somehow that popped up. <laughs> and I was entranced by the whole thing. I was fascinated. At first, I was like, what is he doing? I'm like, okay, right. now I'm going to stay to figure out what is he doing. Okay, now I see what is he doing. Okay, what he wants to do is to see how many rubber bands is he going to put on here before the, the, the watermelon pops. Okay, well, I want to know that. What's the answer to that question? <laughs> and sucked into the whole thing yeah the reason i am mentioning that guy is if he can get 15 minutes of my time and by the way people started to send him i guess the digital money i'm not even sure exactly how he you know he it's not like he was making a living doing that that day or anything but he was creating a need or a want that people didn't have two minutes before i didn't have that want but i gave him time if i can give him 15 minutes of time it's possible I could give him 15 minutes of money. And I'm sure other people were sending him money. My point is that he was so passionate about this. You could see it from the look on his face. You could see all, he had had a whole production, right? So excited about it. (laughs) 
you know what? He's going to be successful. Even if the only thing he's successful in doing is getting us to watch, because if his goal is to build his platform and to get more eyes and get more followers, he's going to be successful. If he then wants to take those followers and then start selling something else, whatever he's going to do, because he is so excited about this watermelon and this rubber band, you have got to find something that you are so excited about doing it that when other people see you doing it, they, you know, they don't even have to ask, is it your passion? Right. They just, they, they just get sucked in, sucked into your passion with you. (laughs) It is, that is incredible. I definitely, I can definitely see how that works. And, and it's so true, you know, people, and it's not something that we're told that often, is it? That find something that lights you up and find a way to get that to be what you get to do all the time. Yeah, it's not something I think that that's a very new concept that is being put out there because I know growing up it was always well pick a job that's going to get you money right pick a career and then you can do what you want on the side but pick a career that's going to make you some money so even if you hate it you can hate it the time that you're there and then do something that you love afterwards and I'm like no no (laughs) And you know what? I grew up in that whole model and um, I, I see the value of it, but I don't tell younger people that anymore. I definitely don't tell them that that's the only way. Right. Because you and I both know that there were, we, you know, in that English model in particular, they kind of stream you into arts and sciences. And by the time you're 13 years old, it's almost like they've decided your fate, right? And the American <laughs> model, it's a similar kind of thing. I grew up in the Caribbean. So the thing is that that's ridiculous because what I know as a parent now is that kids at that age don't have a clue what they want. I mean, yeah, they might have some innate strengths and there are some kids that are lucky. They can yes. use it to figure it out early on and they run with it. But most people are not like that. Nope. So it, it's really good news that we've got the technology that we have access to. For example, your show where you can decide that you want to do this show. You can end up talking to people from all over the world, theoretically. Right. People from all over the world can hear your show. You are, you are in control of that. So it's just a little example. I think we've got to just keep encouraging people to, to start the thing that they keep imagining right. and not only wait. And even if it's just one simple step. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with that also as a mom (laughs) and as, you know, now I don't ask kids now. I I used, we used to get asked all the time. I think, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? I don't ask kids that now. I ask kids, what do you love to do? Tell me what do you, what you love to do? Oh, you love to color. You love to sing. You love to dance. You love to do math, you know, get excited about the things that they love to do because then it sparks in them. Oh, it's okay to love to do this. Let me see how I can actually keep doing it, you know, and make it easy for them to do it. Like, like now I doing things with your hands is not something that we value in our society traditionally. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. But when I see people make things with their hands, whether they're gardeners, whether they're artists, whether they're furniture makers, whatever you want to call those people that are making things, I'm like, wow. Right? (laughs) How did you do that, right? 
why aren't we giving attention and value to all of the things that it takes for our society to, to run, right? Whether it's how you cook, how you bake, how you make furniture, how you repair shoes, like- How you clean. I'm, I'm so in awe of people who do a great job of cleaning because yeah. I love to watch things get clean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's teaching, right? I, sh I have to put teaching on the list um, because we want all our kids to be fantastic, but we don't want the people who help them get fantastic to, we don't advocate right. for them enough so that they can feel like they're being taken care of and then they'll be even better at teaching. So priorities, values, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. So it's not like I think things, I think things are getting better and all of the things that we're talking about Mm -hmm. are things that help to make things better but I'm also uh I think we have each of us has to do our little thing you know we have to do our little thing to know what we care about and make sure that what we get we care about gets what it deserves gets what it deserves absolutely I I believe that when we bring it back to executives and their role in terms of the, the DNI outcomes in their companies. We know that it's a structural thing. I think that more and more people are starting to realize that it's a structural thing, that it's not in our heads, that we're not making it up and we're not just, you know, talking to be talking. Right. But how do we, how do you, or how do we get more executives or more companies to realize this structural issue and to move for, forward. I know personally, you know, I've been in touch with different people at different companies and it always dies. Like the, the conversation always dies because that person is not empowered in that company to do anything. And I think to myself, that's because the person at the top probably is afraid, like you said, and just not ready to broach that conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much that can be said about this. And actually, I don't know if you saw the article that I co-wrote with a colleague of mine that was published in Harvard Business Review on May, in the middle of May. But the article mm -hmm. was about five things that executives um, should be doing to infuse diversity and inclusion into their organizations. And some of those things are more applicable to big companies and smaller companies. But the truth is, you know, there's this basic idea it has to start at the top. So that was, so in response to your question, it always has, if the folks at the top do not believe any of this, it's never going to have any traction. Right. I also feel then that the C, the people who report directly to the CEO, we've got to educate all of these people and the board of directors because their experiences are often very different than the folk that we're trying to advocate for in this conversation. Yes. Like we just said, if you never see a brown person at home, if you never see a brown person on your golf course, if you never see a brown person in your C-suite, you probably, and maybe rightfully so, think everybody is just like you and having the same experiences. And then you come upon, first of all, as I said before, that is a fallacy that many senior leaders hold, which is that the reason they might not understand what the what you are saying is, is and, and the reason they might challenge it is because they don't know what the experience is. So I, I there's a story that I like to tell in my keynote speech that I give about the time that I went on the 
I went with a, a, a team, a new team to uh, Wisconsin. And I was looking forward to this because I was gonna meet the team for the first time. And normally we would have, we'd get together and have dinner, you know, well, this is what would typically happen in consulting, have dinner the night before and make a plan for when we're gonna meet with the client the next day, standard stuff. And I call my colleagues, then nobody reached out to me. I couldn't find anyone. So finally, I ordered room service. I put on my, took a shower, put on my pajamas and went to bed. And then I got this phone call. Oh, I mean, a text, sorry. Got a text that said, we are at restaurant XYZ. Why don't you grab a, a cab and join us? This was like nine o'clock at night. So I had to quickly decide, am I going to go or am I going to stay? Mm. And new kid on the block new brown kid on the block, I decided <laughs> I'm going to put on my clothes, get dressed again and put on, get into a cab. This was before Uber and go. And I went. And when I got there, my colleagues were having dinner. They even had invited one of the clients and she was there with her, her husband and everybody was having a fine time. And it was as if someone had just thought, oh, we didn't invite Gina. Let's just tell her now. Right. But the reason I'm telling you the story now is because the executives of my company don't know what my experience is on a day-to-day -day basis. They think they know. Mm -hmm. And even when you're looking at employee surveys, they might look at it overall and get an overall picture. They don't know what manager X is doing. They don't know what director Y is doing. So I'd say to leaders, this is really, if you have a blind spot about this, that's your problem because you are supposed to be leading 100% of this organization from a people perspective, from every perspective, really. 100% of your team, I don't care how big it is, that's your job. If you don't know what I'm experiencing, you don't show any interest in it, you don't seek to understand it, it's your weakness. So I say to the executives, you've got to teach. Set an expectation that your managers will know the people in their teams, they will understand what's good, what what's good, what's bad and that they will own they will take responsibility for making things better yes i yes because they are essentially responsible and you know people just kind of look at it in that way it's like oh well i find it it's really interesting to me because i i saw on linkedin a little bit after the insurrection in in, in january the the week after there was a company on LinkedIn that posted something and they said, our CEO was part of the insurrection in Washington, DC, but we want to let you know that that has nothing to do with us and that we, we do not, you know, support that. And I thought to myself, you just told us a whole, whole lot a whole lot right there <laughs> it's like because if your ceo was part of that insurrection we already know what type of culture you may have because he is responsible for this this company i was like they i was like wow they really kind of stuck their boot in their mouths didn't they when they did that instead of coming out against it and saying we've we've terminated him he's gone you know they didn't do that they said oh he's just this his what he thinks is not really what we think and we're just you know we're just going to be over here. yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think those as you say you know what we have learned 
all of us in our lifetimes, but especially in the last year, is that just because somebody is at the top of an organization doesn't mean that they have good judgment and good common sense, doesn't mean they're human focused, doesn't mean that they should, that they know better, right? Right. So it's really disappointing when those kinds of things happen because you really kind of want to believe that there's a reason why people are at the top of the pile. You really want to believe that people at the top of the pile are smarter, more capable, work harder, have good intention. Like you want to believe that. And when it doesn't turn out that way, it's a disappointment, but it is worse when the organizations um, don't own it. Right. And, you know, you brought up the, the insurrection and I, and I certainly don't mind saying that this is one of those things I have really strong opinions about. I wrote about <laughs> that recently as well in a Medium article. And I said, you know, it's one thing that we don't know what happened in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We don't have the honest history clearly documented in our textbooks. And we know why that is. We know that that was covered up. People's bodies were buried and it was removed literally from pages of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. There's all of that document. So we know why we don't, as as a country, remember what happened in Tulsa, acknowledge it, own it, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But in front of my very eyes, <laughs> you are trying to do the exact thing with something that's happening while I am alive and seeing it happen on January 6th of 2021, and that will not stand. Right. If, if we as a society allow that to stand, it will be the equivalent of that company that said, oh, we know we don't agree with the CEO, but he doesn't represent us, but he's still here. Right. If we let that pretending that that doesn't exist or didn't happen, if we let that stand, it would be the equivalent of our whole society saying, we know, we might even know that it's wrong, but we don't intend to do anything about it. We're going to just try to keep carrying on as usual as if nothing ever happened. So if we as a society let that stand, we're destroying our society, we would accomplish for some people the short-term goal of pushing it under the carpet and some people might think that's okay but the scar that it would create yeah. is there forever so yeah. as a society we you know we're at that point as a society we have to decide what we believe mm-hmm. yeah we we really do i was just thinking about as you were speaking as you were speaking about everything i think that a lot of what we're talking about is the cost of racism so A lot of times when I say this is the cost of racism, people think about monetary costs. Mm -hmm. And there is a very huge monetary cost to racism. If you only think about the, if if you take one thing, one of the things that I like to say is that you're not paying someone enough to be able to buy a house, which means that the money that they would put, that they would get from a mortgage doesn't go into the banking system. So the bank can't even invest in the number of things that they would like to invest. Therefore, some things don't get invested in. I mean, the, the, the line just keeps going and going and going. And that is a cost of racism. And then who's to say that the bank even wants to give them that mortgage because of who they are, what how they look. And therefore, the bank doesn't get that asset, which then diminishes the cost. I mean, the, 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 the cost is, is compounded in so many right. ways. 
but it's not just a monetary cost. When you talk about, we only see different people when we go to work, that is a cost of racism. Of course. Right? Not being able to, having fear of the other because we don't live with them. We don't understand them. We don't care to understand them. We don't, we don't, we don't need to, we don't need to. So that fear, that fear is a cost of racism. That inability to, to relate is a cost of racism. That inability to be social with all types of people without putting your boot in your mouth, that is a cost of racism. And it sometimes, it used to really blow my mind that people couldn't understand this. But the more I do this, the more I realize people cannot see what is not in their periphery to see, right? For us, we live, we have a different lived experience. So there are certain things that we see because we've lived that experience. But if you haven't lived that experience or you're not willing to be open to that experience, you're walking around like this thinking you're seeing the whole picture and someone's saying, look over there, look over there. And you're like, I see, I see. And like, no, you don't see. You've got to look that way, you know? That's right. And That's- all of this is the cost of racism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once you begin to unravel that, once you begin to see how you know, pulling on that one string begins to, to, you you, you know, it it becomes this whole thing. And you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I didn't realize it was so much, right? But it's a lot is, you know, racism costs a lot. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. And even these, uh, you know, if I think about it from corporations uh, perspective, I heard Isabel Wilkerson, who is the author of Cast and mm-hmm. the Warmth of Other Sons. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner. She is a former New York Times reporter, correspondent. And she told a story. I mean, Isabel Wilkerson, have you, I don't know if you've ever seen her books, but when she writes a book, it's like 500 pages long because <laughs> she leaves no stone unturned. She happens to be brown and from the South. Her, her parents are from the South. But she told a story on a podcast, actually, that when she was working at the New York Times, she arranged an interview with this gentleman who was a senior executive at some company in in the city. So they arranged that she would meet this person on this particular day at this particular time. And that was that. So at a designated time, she came into the building, she checked in with the receptionist, she sat in the chair in the lobby, the receptionist said to her, the person was not uh, back in the building, you know, just have a seat and then, you know, we'll go from here. So normal stuff. Mm-hmm. So she sees this fellow walk, come into the building. He's, he's in a hurry. He's agitated because clearly, you know, he's late for something. And she already guesses that maybe this is the guy. And it is the guy. The receptionist kind of motions. She goes over to the guy and she says, hi. I'm Isabel Wilkerson from the New York Times. I'm here to do your interview, mister. The guy said, show me your ID. Show me that you're Isabel Wilkerson. Show me, show me that. She said, I don't have a business card because I wasn't expecting that I would need a business card. He wanted a credential. He said, I just came to do the interview. So her ID was not what he wanted. He wanted 
social evidence that she was a reporter. And he said to her, I can't keep talking to you. I am waiting for a reporter from the New York Times. He refused to let Isabel Wilkerson interview him. Isabel Wilkerson left that building without her interview. So number one, we have this woman who now has this experience. She doesn't accomplish her job for her employer. Mm-hmm. And then this guy who had a job to do for his employer, which was to be interviewed by the New York Times. He does not get interviewed because, and now his job, his company loses this opportunity to have their name mentioned in the New York Times, which everybody wishes they could have. Right. And go their separate ways. She never forgets that story. She, 10 years later, or however long it is, she's telling that story because as you and I know, it is not the cost of racism is not just, there's the emotional level, level, there's the individual level, there's a group level. There is sort of the memory level, the stuff we carry, almost like we carry it from generation to generation. But even there you see how from a business perspective, it's a no win for that company. Mm -hmm. So it it is irrational. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Mm -mm. Yeah, right. And, you know, and, and you say, you know, in the emotional level, it's like you, you wonder, she, she told this story on a podcast, but how long did it take her to process that and to really just be okay with what happened before she could actually verbalize that this thing happened and then to verbalize it publicly? Right. Yeah, there's that. And there's, a, there's also the fact that the mere fact that she did bring it up on a podcast lets you know how deeply it cut her. Yes. And inspired her. Right. And why should that have? Why should she have that? And guess what? This is where people say, well, why are you always talking about race? I guarantee you, had she been the, a white guy or a white woman that showed up, those questions would have never been asked. Of it her. would have never been a, can I see your ID? They yeah. There would have been, and which, you know, again, so we think about this again, the uh, imposter, if an imposter wanted to do that, the best imposter would have been a white male to go and say, I'm the New York Times reporter, right? If he want, if they wanted sure. and no questions asked, mm-hmm. no questions asked. Yeah. But you know what? I have to say, uh, say one thing as well, which is that I know that you and I are having a conversation about the fact that we know this can be better. And because I'm yes. all about the future, the better, the, okay, we have to tell these stories because we want to make sure everybody is 100% clear. clear. <laughs> Don't negate my story. Don't ask me why I always talk about race. Don't pretend that the January 6th didn't happen or tell us. Let's get our stories told, but then always leave the energy for what are we going to do to make what it can do? What, what can we do? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, this is my lane. Um, I do want to share with your audience that, you know, as I was talking about the side hustle, I didn't finish my point about one other thing that's related to this, which is I have a good friend. Her name is Suzanne Mariga. This year, she wrote a book called uh, Profit First for Minority Business Enterprises. I really encourage anybody who's considering entrepreneurship as their for real, for real as their side hustle, 
to read that book because what that book is about is this part about solutions. Just like how I try to offer solutions in the corporate space, she's saying, if you do start a business, make sure that you know what to do to make it sustainable because your goal is not just to make money to survive today, but ultimately to see what you can do to build generational wealth. And generational wealth doesn't mean it has to be millions of dollars. Right. It just means that you want to make sure that you do the things in a way that as you put your energy into this, you can sustain it. Yeah. I just so, did a podcast interview with uh, Nikkei Anani, and she talks about generational wealth because yeah. she's a, a family business strategist. Yes, absolutely. So it's all, you know, the one thing those stories have in common is self the control of our destinies to the degree that we can we can't there are things we can't control but control what we can control correct give me the name of that suzanne again suzanne uh s-u-s-a-n-n-e and then the last name is mariga m-a-r-i-g-a great book great person but you know just as a reminder that we we will do what we can for ourselves too yeah, I will definitely link that book in the show notes under this because it's a resource and we need to have oh, those yeah. resources for Great sure. Resource. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's always important to say, okay, this is what's happening. So, but what can we do about it? I think that having the conversations is so key because you remember, you know, we have these, these blinders on. And there are things that, you know, we all have things that we don't see, but the best thing to do is to walk into a conversation, leaving the need to be right and leaving the need to be on top behind. Yeah. And then walking into that conversation and saying, okay, help me to see what you see. And the only way you can do that is by having a real conversation. Absolutely. And that requires connecting, listening, checking for understanding, goodwill. Yes. Belief that tomorrow can be better than today. I mean, like it requires all of that. And we mm -hmm. can do that. We can do that. We can. We can. We just have to, we all have to walk in with the willingness to do yes. that. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I had a number of interviews from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., half an hour, half an hour, half an hour. You can imagine how many people I had to talk to. But every time someone walked into the room, I also had to be willing to listen actively and to engage with what that person was saying. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, incorporate what that person is saying into the notes that I'm writing. And it can be exhausting. Like that, I was so tired after that. I was exhausted, but it's also invigorating because if you can walk out of a conversation and say, oh my gosh, I learned something new. I learned so much and I really feel empowered or connected or, or whatever it is alive. It was worth the time that you put into it. Yeah. And, and I do think that leaders of companies specifically I don't think there, there probably is not a leader of a company in the United States that has employees who's not aware 
that this conversation is being elevated, that they're going to get more questions, that expectations are changing. Not that I think anything is going to happen uh, either magically or right. without effort, but, and, and that there are some who won't be interested and won't want to engage in it. But I think most of the people that I am meeting want to do something. Now, some of them want it to happen yesterday, which doesn't work, but right. I do think they want to have something be better. They're not necessarily sure what they have to give up to get it, or if they have to give up something, or if the thing they have to give up is too great, and they're not sure how they're going to satisfy all of their internal constituents mm -hmm. as they do it. Mm -hmm. But my sense is that the horse is out of the barn. Yes. <laughs> we choose to close that gate. My sense is that these this conversation is going to continue because people... Mm -hmm. Well, two things. Individuals feel more empowered. And then because, unfortunately, of the pandemic and what is happening with people, it's as if people have, in general, have awakened and said, wait a minute, I don't have to live like this. I don't have to live like this in terms of how I'm treated at work. I don't have to live like this in terms right. of driving, riding on a train for two hours to get to my job. Like, whatever people's, that human urge is to, like, say, we know better, I think that's going to help, too. And then the third thing that's going to help is we have this younger generation. This younger generation is not like me. They don't say, okay, we'll wait tomorrow. Mm -mm. They haven't been socialized that way. I think that we were socialized in a way that we were, we were coming off of the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, great. Look, all these things got signed into law. Now we're going to act right. Yes. Right. Now we're going to fit into boxes that don't fit us we're going to make ourselves fit we're going to do what we need to do in order to not rock the boat and just you know be happy with that and i think that this generation is far enough removed from that and we as parents i don't think are imposing that same thing on them and so they're just kind of like you know like we said Find something that lights you up and make that your thing. Make that the thing that you do. And so they they feel that they have a more options than we felt we had. So they're like, they're out here going, your company doesn't do this, this, and this. I'm not working there. I'm going to keep on, keep it moving. <laughs> and they're dead serious about it. And, you know, if you think about Greta Thunberg and the climate change and the impact she had because she believed what she believed and she kept saying it. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of thing, you know, young folks are saying like, wait a minute, they're looking to see, is your organization diverse before they even join it? And then they're asking questions about it. I actually had a, a conversation with a young man a few weeks ago that I mentor, and it was, okay, this recruiter has been talking to me. I just feel like she's just looking for a brown person. I'm going to start asking questions to better understand do they really want me or do they just want a brown person? Because mm. that's going to let, and, and he did that. He didn't just say, okay, I'm so happy and honored to offer me a job. That is new. That's yes. New. Yeah. That is new stuff. That's new. Yeah. Um, I, because I'm sure, because I can't think of a time that I was thinking that actively and saying, I'm not, I don't want that to be no. the case. I, I, yeah, yeah, we probably knew and we, we would certainly notice, but then you have you would decide, well, what am I going to do? Every place is like this. So I, if this is it, well, I might as well take it. Right. 
Exactly. <laughs> I'm so excited for this new, this next generation, this, this generation of we're gonna, we're gonna shake things up. We're gonna do it. We're gonna, we're gonna make things different. We're gonna, we're gonna do diff- things differently because we can and because we have this access. They have access to information like we never had before. And overhead to start anything is very low, depending on what it is that you want to start. Because if you have a computer and a phone, you don't even need a microphone. You need a headset and you're good. That's right. Right. So they're going to, they're going to do things a little differently. And that's, that's exciting, but we definitely want to make sure that companies, everyone's got to move with the times. And that's the thing, you know, I I had a, 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 podcast interview with someone and she says you know sometimes you walk into a company and you feel like you walked into the 1950s <laughs> like oh, yeah. it's yeah oh it's- yeah man <laughs> I tell you I, I worked with a client a few years back that I said I will never I, I I worked with this client and from early on I suspected so this is when I was an employee of a company several years ago Mm-hmm. I suspected almost from the first day I met this client remotely that the way that they were related to me, relating to me, made me feel like they're not comfortable with me, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's fine. That, that, that's nothing new. I can deal with this. And so then your day goes by, you do your thing, do your thing. And then finally we get to the point where I was going to have to go to the company's headquarters to make a presentation to the senior team. And at first I didn't realize it, but the people I was dealing with to get ready for this they started like nitpicking everything that I was doing. Whatever, everybody has their way. Eventually though, I I figured out they did not want me to come to their headquarters to do this presentation. Mm -hmm. And so it got to such a head that they, the the client did an end run around me and went to somebody else in my company to complain about me. And they, And, and basically, I mean, it was fascinating because I wasn't doing anything differently with this client than with any other client. They were getting 150%, but they didn't want me to show up. Ultimately, my boss ended up having me having to be the one to go to this company and do this work with the executive team. And I remember thinking, oh, well, you know, in a situation like that, perhaps what my organization ought to do is say, we have given you the best person for this job. That's right. And you will, you know, this is what we have to, this is what we'll do. And this is what our contract, our contract doesn't specify who will do this work for you, but we've given you the best person in this job. But that wasn't how it got handled. And frankly, at that point, I didn't want to go to that client. Mm-hmm. But that whole ridiculous game and gamesmanship and all the things that, you know, that we sort of set up in the world, we've got to constantly push against, push against that because it's wrong it's not just mm-hmm. wrong because it's gina right it's wrong and we know the difference right right and i say <laughs> that's something i say to people all the time it's like mm, i've been brown all my life so there are certain things that i'm gonna see that you're not gonna yes. see and so yes. yeah we can we can tell and you know i can walk into a room and sometimes it's the people that you don't want to engage with or is so palpable simply by walking into the room and it's like well how do you know maybe you're wrong no 
please believe me when I tell you, <laughs> you know, just believe me when I tell you, because my experience is that I have been brown all my life and I've been in majority white spaces a lot of that time. Therefore, if I tell you that mm, that person is putting off a certain air, trust me. Yeah, yeah. But those are intangibles that are really hard to show. So you, you know, you can't, it's, that's the thing. It's, you can't spend it, you know, you, you can't explain that all the time. And, no, you can't. And all this shit. So you just have to do what you have to do. And that's what you do. I know. And that's what I do. That's right. Um, but it is a tax. It's like a tax. It is. It is a tax. But I, I, I do have to say this because, because I believe it, which is that on a personal level, I am, I am like the most blessed person in the sense that, you know, what I worry about are those people who didn't finish their college, high school education, never mind college, those people who are doing these most essential jobs. Yes. I'm having a conversation about can I work working from home versus going to the office? And I'm like, and people are like, okay, where's my next meal coming from? And yeah. right now we have this housing crisis that is about to really become much more of a problem than it already is. You know, in the big scheme of things, each of us, you know, should always be looking to see, you know, how do we help the person who has less than we do? Like us, even having this conversation, our, I, can, I consider us the lucky ones. You know, we have so yeah. much for us. We, we know that. We don't forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I just this year have really been thinking about people who really, yeah, this, the COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Some people with their entire lives turned upside down. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that too. And it's, and so what you're talking about right now is, is acknowledging, understanding the privilege that you hold because simply because I'm a black woman does not mean that I do not hold certain privileges. I do have certain privileges. Mm -hmm. So acknowledging and understanding the privilege that you hold and then spending that privilege on someone who could use it. Right. And so making sure that you can, if you can make someone's voice heard, uh, put, say someone's name in a room where they may never be able to get into because of the things that you've mentioned. And so, so much more that if you can get into the room, say their name, because someone else hopefully is saying your name. Absolutely. Right. In, in another room where you're not going to be. So spending that privilege wisely on, on, so that we can, you know, so that the rising tide can raise all the ships. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You it's, know, it's, this is big stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything you would like to bring to the forefront that we have not talked about you know, in I this conversation? Covered, I think I've covered a lot of ground. I, the only other thing I would say on the corporate level is that, you know, Another, we talked about employee experience is a key measure. I want to know what the experiences of employees. And then I also, and the career mobility is another key measure for organizations to use as an outcome to understand if they're making progress. Because it's one thing to hire people, it's bad enough that, you know, people might not get hired at the same rate. But then once you bring um, people from underrepresented groups into your organization, you got to make sure they're getting career development and coaching from their managers and not being ignored. They get promotions and transfers and special contracts and access to all the things that are the currency that makes it possible for a person to be their very, very best in that role. So I didn't want to forget that because, you know, people are always saying, well, how, what to do, what to do, what to right. do. 
<laughs> what to do. Uh, if you take a strategic perspective, there's a lot that leaders and organizations can do that are that will make a significant difference. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thank you so much. The last question that I have that I ask every one of my guests is, what is your favorite dish, Gina? Well, that one is really easy. Oh. My, and, and I haven't had it in years. Well, <laughs> I haven't had it in a year and a half, pandemic and all that. My favorite dish is flying fish and cuckoo, which is the national dis- dish of Barbados. And cuckoo is something that's eaten it, I know that there, uh, it's even in some countries in Africa, but it's not called that. But basically, the, the most basic version of this that I have ever heard is what people will sometimes call turned cornmeal. Okay. So it's a cornmeal base. Now, what cuckoo is, is added to that are okras and yes. um, certainly salt and pepper and depend, depending on the family and the house, you know, they might put other little things in this, but it's a dish that requires that you, it must be stirred and stirred and stirred and stirred and stirred and stirred, and stirred until, until it becomes, it doesn't have any lumps. It becomes smooth, like the yeah. real, the people who really know how to make it. And then you put it a beautiful tomatoey, uh, buttery sauce on there. And on the side of it, you put some fried fine fish. Mm. And, now, fried flying fish, flying fish, most people know, has seen a flying fish in a picture or, or even up close, mm-hmm. and they're small fish. But in the Caribbean, in, in, in this part of the Caribbean, Barbados, Trinidad, you know, these were the fish that people who had money wouldn't have wanted. So again, it's oh. kind of like the food for more of like the masses. And when, yeah. I was, when I was a child, you could buy 10 flying fish for a dollar. I remember that. Now I think you have to get $2 for one flying fish, but nevertheless... <laughs> But people know how to make it. So it's like, oh, so you have the cocoon and you have the flying fish, you eat it. And then you're like in a, in a stupor because you're like, <laughs> I, how did I overeat? I didn't even intend to overeat this stuff. It's so good. Anyhow, that's my favorite dish. I love it. I've never heard of kukua, but it sounds almost like fufua, except for fufua is um, potato based. No, but it. Well, it's potato based in the U.S. I'm not sure if it is in 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 Africa, but it it sounds almost it sounds very similar, which mm-hmm. I'm not surprised because I'm watching. Oh. I started watching High on the Hog on yeah. Netflix, yeah. and when you said the uh, the okra, I was like, ah, see the gumbo. Oh, oh. <laughs> Always, and um, and I many years ago I worked on a cruise line. I had a friend who was an executive uh, in the hospitality group that ordered all our, the food for the cruise ships that went all over the world. And one time he invited me to lunch in um, Carl Gable's uh, Miami area, because that's where we were headquartered. Uh-huh. And we did this Italian restaurant and they have a, a dish that is basically cuckoo minus the, minus the uh, okras. It's called, oh my gosh, as soon as I did that, I cannot remember the name of it now, <laughs> but any Italian who's listening to this show or watching it, yeah, you know, there's that dish. It's the cornmeal. It's a little drier the way that you make it. But when I had it, it's this is the same. the same thing. Wow, that's our that's that's the that's the vein that connects us. Yes, that we know that we're all connected and that we're all from the same place. It's just right. you know, 
yeah because you know in the high on the hog they said that the the okra is is native to africa it's yeah. not here but they brought it yes. here because they were bringing the the people that they were subsequently to enslave here and yes. they had to eat something yeah and actually the interesting thing about that is the com the, the the places where i've gone where they've used okra in their meals have tended to be either places where the majority of the people were of African descent. Uh, well, basically, yeah, were it tended to be that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of Haitian descent, so we have okra all the time. My brother doesn't like it. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah we have, we, we used to have okra grown up all the time. My dad, you know, he still uses it in different ways. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gina, for being on Diversity Dish. I so appreciate your insights and your presence here with me. Well, Sadie, this has been a delightful conversation. You promised me that we would have a conversation and not just like a formal whatever. But um, I really admire your interviewing skills because we covered the basis. We got it all done. And at the same time, I hope we've made a connection that we can keep going forever. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And finally, before you go, don't forget, we have a date. See you soon.